don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary, we don't know the contrast organic. Folks, welcome back. Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us here every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So, it's good to be back. I feel like it's been a long time. I am broadcasting from a different studio today than my normal studio. And I have to say, it's much different doing the program somewhere else. It's always a challenge. I like, personally, I like routine. I love to sit down, have my glass of water, or a pint of beer if I had my workout earlier in the day. And there's something interesting about doing live radio. It's different than a podcast format. The podcast format, while I think it can be useful in many ways, especially if, say, you want to get a a very specific point across, and let's say you have only a limited amount of time to do so, then I think the podcast format is great. But otherwise, I think there's something special about live radio. It's almost like an improvisational music performance. It's much different than going up there, say, with a set list and deciding what you're going to play, deciding what you're going to do, you know. And if people are looking for, I've had other people say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a much more structured program. Well, go somewhere else. That's all. (laughs) It's not a big deal. There's thousands of radio programs and thousands of podcasts out there. You can find that somewhere else. We like to jump all over the place here. I like to bounce from topic to topic. And essentially to have a program that is best as best as we can sort of mimic what's happening in my head. That's all I can do for you here. If you want a prepackaged, refined program, I suggest going elsewhere. And again, as I mentioned, part of the reason I love this is because it is live radio. Nonetheless, we have a special program here for you today. I guess as we always do. But today I'll be speaking with author, activist, and global citizen Dina Stryker about her book, Cuba, A Diary of of the Revolution, published by Tayin Lane Press. It has been nearly five decades since Dina Stryker, then Boyer, journeyed to Cuba. Dina, a photojournalist, went to revolutionary Cuba to both write and photograph the struggles, the trials, and disagreements the victories and losses of the Cuban people. There, she experienced the revolution firsthand and enjoyed numerous conversations and powerful moments with its revolutionary leaders, Castro, Che, Celia, Raul, and a whole host of revolutionaries. Cuba, a diary of the revolution, is the documented account of that journey during the early years of Cuba's revolution in the early 1960s and also a candid look at Cuba of today as it comes to detente with the U.S. And I'm sure we'll talk about other topics as well with Dina. Uh, So let's welcome Dina to the program. Dina, are you there? 
I'm here. How are you? I am excellent. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. And I think we should thank Lorna, I believe. Is that how we pronounce her name? Yes. Yes, I want to thank Lorna because she is the person who first sent me your book. And then I started to read some of your other work. And then I saw you're also, what is the website that you're the senior editor at? That's called opednews.com. Opednews.com. Great. And for right. folks who want to purchase Cuba, A Diary of the Revolution, where would be the best place for them to purchase this book? Well, if you like purchasing online, I guess Amazon would be the best place. You can get it there, um, both, I think, in hard copy and in paperback, if I'm not is mistaken. It, is it better for people to go through the publisher than Amazon? I'm just wondering in, in terms of for you and for the publisher. I haven't discussed that with the publisher, so I would be afraid to pronounce myself. But I okay. really think <laughs> if you want to get it, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, then Amazon is your best bet because publishers have so many matters to take care of. I don't think that uh, they particularly focus on giving individual attention to each buyer of the book. That's why we have Amazon. Okay, great. Great. So, well, let's just get right into it. I mean, I'm first of all, the book was excellent. I went and read it the first time over the latter part of the summer, and then I went back the last few days and read it again with a highlighter. And oh, I have to say, mm. of all the books that I've read about Latin American revolutions, particularly Cuba, and my minor in, in college was in Latin American studies, and so we had to read book after book about the revolution. And mm -hmm. one thing I noticed immediately about your book and, and your sort of diary here about your time in Cuba was how nuanced it was. So often, I guess, what I found is when I'm reading a book about Cuba, it's either from this Western perspective that is either hypercritical or very dogmatic, and I guess from the other mm -hmm. end, uh, from, say, my leftist friends, who can also, I think, paint a very sort of dogmatic and very black and white picture of what yeah. happened and what is happening in Cuba. Does that, mm -hmm. Is that part of what you were trying to do with this book? It's part of what I was trying not to do. Right. Well, I mean, I meant injecting some nuance into the conversation. Right, so, yes. so you were trying to avoid By those things consciously. Right. Yes, absolutely. Because my my primary motivation for going to Cuba was that I met people who had been there, people whom I knew that I could trust. And what they were telling me was completely different from what I was reading in the newspapers. I was working at the French news agency in Rome at that time on the news desk, so I had access to all sorts of sources, news sources, and as I, you may remember if you were around at that time, it, it, there was only one story, and it was always the same, and it was critical, and it was, well, sort of similar to what we're seeing in the news today about Putin and Russia. It was the same thing back then, only it was about Cuba and Castro. Well, to so give I, you a little, to inform you a little bit about myself, so I'm 32 years old, so I don't okay. remember too much from that period. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was born in 84, and you know, this brings us to an interesting point, actually, because what's interesting to me about this is that this younger generation, so people I know, 
these words mm-hmm. like communism, socialism, I think we saw some of that with the Bernie Sanders campaign where that message resonates and people aren't scared of the terminology. Mm-hmm. But also say mm-hmm. issues like the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, Russia, and also with Cuba, I just don't see the same uh, attitudes among younger people. Like when I grew up, Cuba, I didn't ever heard anything about Cuba. It was just this small island that had really good music and really good cigars. That's all yeah. I knew at 10 years old about Cuba. Um, uh, wasn't scared of it, up? didn't know who was in power. You know, So I think that just to give you a little insight, I think of, I, I mm-hmm. would assume my experience is very similar to a lot of people who come from my generation. Mm-hmm. Well, my point in going there was that I had sort of, I was a sort of newcomer to the world of journalism, and I was troubled by this contradiction between what I was reading in the press and on the newswires and what real people that I knew were telling me. And I thought, well, before I get further into this profession, let me just check it out and see, you know, are they, are they really doing what they're supposed to be doing? And I was lucky to have a French passport. I'm a dual French-American citizen. And so even though Americans were not supposed to go to Cuba, French people could go, you know, without any problem. I mean, Europeans in general were going to Cuba with no problem. And that's how I managed to go uh, through these contacts with people that had already been there, journalists who had already been there. Um, basically, I, I um, what's the word I'm looking for? I pitched the idea of doing a portrait of Fidel to a big French weekly called Paris Match that had published excerpts from my book on the making of the Fellini film Eight and a Half. And so when I pitched this idea, they said, yeah, well, if you can do it, go ahead. But I was strictly on my own, and it was on my own money and uh, without any backing from anybody. And uh, I just had the name of somebody to contact from these people that I knew. Uh, I sent them a telegram, but (laughs) they didn't even meet me at the airport, which is typical for the way Cubans operate. I mean, you know, it's sort of a the capital of Mañanismo. Uh, and uh, I, I went straight to the press office of the foreign ministry and told them what I was there for. And they said, oh, ho-hum, yes, well, we'll see to it. And yes, yes, we promise we'll do our best. You know, here's this lady who, you know, How nobody old were you ever at heard the time, of. Gina? I was um, going on 30. So you were still quite young. Yes, yes. And this is your first. Right. This is your 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 first major investigative piece here is to go all the way to Cuba from France or from Rome at the time. Right, right, right. And That's to somehow right. find Fidel. Yes. Well, <laughs> the thing is that after a couple of weeks, when I wasn't getting anywhere with my request and my money was running out, I kind of lo- lost it with the guy at the fr- press office. I I chewed him out over the phone and. I think he thought, well, just maybe I ought to tell my higher-ups about this woman because if I don't, maybe she'll publish some really bad things about Cuba like the, uh, the rest of the people who come here. <laughs> so literally on the day before I was supposed to leave, um, I got a call to come the following morning when I was supposed to get on an airplane to uh, see the head of the... Uh, propaganda department of the Cuban Communist Party. And I went to see him, 
and we had a friendly sort of sword semi-drawn talk. Uh, and he said, well, if you really want to get on that plane, I'll tell him to wait for you, but if you could stick around, be our guest, I'll try to get through to Fidel. So that's how I ended up staying three more weeks, meeting with Fidel five times, because the the thing I had pitched to the magazine was to do a portrait of him as a person. So it wasn't, I want to sit down with him for five hours and learn all about his politics. It was, I want to follow him around and see him as, in as many different settings as possible, doing as many different things as possible. And so um, I did that. <laughs> And, what were your um, politics before you before this trip, Dina? So, so going into this this piece, trying to find Fidel, what were your what was sort of your worldview? You're going on thirty years old. You're traveling around. Obviously, I'm assuming you have a little more of an internationalist perspective than many, say, typical American oh, or Westerners oh, at that time. Yeah, I had been living in France. I had gone to school in France. I had, you know, was living in Italy for several years at that time. And uh, my, my, my trend was left without any specifics. I'm not a joiner, you know. I don't carry uh, a card of a, of a communist or other party that I would I'm join. I mean, I, I, I like to watch and make my own, you know, give my own impressions. And uh, I, don't, I don't join, but I watch. And I read a lot. And, um, well, I guess... Since being in Cuba, I had no political education at the time. I was working in a major news agency, but, you know, turning out the news from day to day and watching what was going on and, you know, having my own ideas, but no formal, I had no formal socialist vocabulary, you know, uh, Marxist vocabulary or any of that. I learned some of it, talking to the leaders in Cuba, of course. Sure. And... <laughs> And, um, well, I think that what happened was that Fidel met with me that very evening of the day that I decided to accept their invitation, against all journalistic rules, of course. You're not supposed to do that. Um, he came at, like, 12 o'clock midnight with an American-trained Cuban doctor who went everywhere with him and sort of was both his doctor and his primary aide. And uh, he functioned as an interpreter for those first few hours. And when I told Fidel, you know, who I was, what I, he wanted to know what I owned. So I said, basically, I own a typewriter and a small car. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he made his, you know, after maybe half an hour of asking me questions about my life and who I was and where I came from, he decided that, he would go along with my plan, and so I started asking him different things, and this guy was translating, and then after about two hours, he gets up and he says, well, goodbye, I'm leaving, and I don't know if it was prearranged with Fidel that after a certain amount of time, he would he would uh, discreetly leave. This is like two o'clock in the morning, um, and I thought, well, I, sp I studied a little Spanish a couple of years ago, and I speak Italian fluently, so I'll just have to manage. And <laughs> so <laughs> what, are the, was, what are your first impressions? So you're sitting here, you're a, you're a 
going on 30 years old, you're you're not necessarily ex- extremely political person, but you're aware of the news, you have a perspective, and mm-hmm. you're meeting with one of the most infamous leaders in the world right now, revolutionary <laughs> leaders. What I mean, right. what, what, did you have to get past the nerves of sitting down with people like that? To, no, to be a- absolutely not. No. Okay. Mm-mm. No, because the people that I trusted had told me that all the things that were being written about were bullshit. So, I mean, I didn't have the slightest, you know, I I wasn't, I wasn't there supposing, assuming that what the papers were writing were true, but giving it a chance to be not true. I was there knowing that it had to be true, that what my, what my acquaintances said had to be true, not what, what the papers were saying. So no, I didn't have I didn't have and I had just spent like a year watching a very famous film director Federico Fellini directing his film Eight and a Half. So and you know, I had interviewed any number of people in the artistic world, which was what I was basically involved with all that that time in my early years in journalism is as I covered the arts. So, you know, he was another another famous person among many that I had already interviewed. And, well, you get a sense of people almost immediately. And he was a person who um, exuded a lot of um, um, energy. He he was a person who smiled a lot. You know, he, he was like, you couldn't sort of like, seeing him for the first time you you didn't have any impression that this was an evil person no way you know so i would say if i had met raul first raul was um quieter more reserved um but he, i don't think even then i would have i would have been ill at ease or worried or something like that no well it's interesting cuz in, in the middle i think it's in the middle of the book i forget which chapter but you mentioned the differences between Raul and Fidel, and you you noticed that spending time with Raul, just how organized he was, and it was just a yep. much different temperament, much different demeanor than his brother Fidel. Totally, totally different. Yes, uh, many people at that time in Cuba used to consider that Fidel was an artist, basically. Uh, and that really was the way he functioned, you know, on inspiration and. He had the enthusiasm of an artist, and the revolution was his his uh, magnum opus, if you want to say. You know, and he he real literally ate, drank, slept, revolution twenty four seven. That was that was his entire life. Raoul was, um, you know, m- much quieter, um, and as you say, more more organized. In fact, I, I think in the book there is a a, um, a drawing that he, he made for me. Um, oh, the drawing is not about how organized rankings, or right? just... Yeah, he gave, made a drawing of the rankings in the army. But it was at that same, during that same conversation that he was saying, you know, the difference between Fidel and me is that I decide to do something, I ask somebody to study it, uh, they bring back the results of their studying. Then I de- delegate the work, the actual project, to somebody, and every once in a while I check in to see how it's going. But with Fidel, is that he gets an idea, 
and he just continues on doing everything that's related to that idea by himself. He doesn't delegate. And that was, I think, a very, very, uh, well, of course, it's, it's not to say that he would be focused on one thing and then wouldn't do anything else. He was always doing, you know, 16 sure. different things Just different at the same leadership time, styles. But, but he had, yeah, he didn't, he had a tendency not to delegate. And the person who would, in fact, delegate probably on behalf of Fidel, in fact, I'm sure that that's the way it was, Celia Sanchez was the person who was closest to him and, and, uh, who lived for him in his and his work? Uh, she organized him to the extent that he could be organized. Um, she was the person that everybody called if they wanted to get Fidel's attention, if they wanted to let him know about something, and they knew that she would be, you know, she would make sure the information got to him, and then she would get back to the person, and she was the officially the president of the Council of Ministers, but she worked from home just like Fidel did. They, they had fancy offices in the presidential building, whatever it was called, and uh, at one point, apparently, uh, Fidel, realizing that he would never really inhabit that office, gave it to um, Eduardo... Oh, what's his name? The president. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, I keep forgetting his name these days. Um, he gave the office to the president because he said, after all, he's going to be in the office all day, and he, he deserves to have a nice view. And <laughs> <laughs> Did, um... That's... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, you. Yeah, I'm so... Part of what I was thinking about as well as you're mentioning this is not just your first impressions of, of Fidel, although obviously that's very important, but what what were your first impressions of the country itself? So you get there, you're talking to the Cuban people, you're engaging with the culture. And, and something else that I was thinking as you were mentioning uh, Celia Sanchez was how what were the gender dynamics that you noticed coming there as a woman from the West? What, what did you see within the revolution that you thought was both maybe positives, maybe some negatives of how are they trying to deal with that separation, this this sort of legacy of, of patriarchy, especially in, in particular cultures, is more pronounced? Uh, really, I didn't have any any sense of patriarchy, maybe because they'd already been, you know, the revolution was three or four years old by the time I got there. It was 19, right. the end of 1963. They came in 59. And most of the ministers that I, that I met with had married women who were part of the struggle, just as they had been. And they, was, they, were, they seemed to be, you know, very comfortable in, a, in an egalitarian type of marriage without it being, you know, to the extreme, like um, Heide Santa Maria, um, who was in charge of the House of Culture at the time, and um, she was married to the Minister of Education. And she told me, well, when my husband has to go to some conference in a foreign country, I usually try to figure out some way I can be useful to the party, because she had a sort of unofficial position in the party is sort of keeping track of projects and, and how things were doing and 
uh, so she she said, well, if I can find a way to be useful in that country and, and accompany him, I go. Not not because I have to, you know, I don't tag along like the wife. I, I go there and do my own thing. But still, I like to go with him. <laughs> <laughs> She was the woman who was very outspoken, and she would say, I don't know anything about art. (laughs) She's head of this house of culture that's having famous artists come put their paintings on a show, or famous writers were having conferences there, but she she was just sort of like clumping along. She didn't want to make any mystery of it. She had people around her who knew about art, so that was okay. Right. Well, you know, that kind of brings up something I noticed throughout the book. So one of the central questions that you raise or that you were you bring up throughout the diary is that you were interested in this central question about communism and Fidel Castro and how he came to become a communist. Was it before, during... Uh, the revolution yeah. was it after? How did how did this how did his ideology take shape and form? And what I found interesting was you know the 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 little anecdote that you mentioned about uh, someone you know ahead of this cultural center, not necessarily that familiar with the arts, but then also you're talking with people throughout the country, teachers, farmers, mm-hmm. peasants, and so on, and you're asking a lot of folks, you know, how did you come to be? A revolutionary? Or were you a Marxist? Mm-hmm. Were you a communist? And what I found very interesting was a lot of people really weren't dogmatically ideological in their oh, beliefs. No, you know, there right. wasn't this that's like right. constant dogma about Marxism and socialism and communism. And it's almost as though I hear it more in the activist circles in which I run here in the United States, where there isn't a revolution taking place. <laughs> but then hey, I'm reading your book, and what I find <laughs> extremely interesting, and of course from other uh, other diaries and, and books as well, which I found interesting, but this reminds me through your book, is that a lot of people who were actually engaged in these revolutions weren't as ideologically dogmatic as those who were, say, witnessing these revolutions from abroad. Oh, sure. The ones who are dogmatic are sitting in their comfortable chairs. Don't you know that? <laughs> yes. Watching yes, the other I've unfortunately people. learned that. <laughs> yeah. And then criticizing what the other people are doing if they're not doing it right or they're not doing it enough or whatever. They should have done this instead of that. But there was one guy who was the minister of planning, and he was an old communist. He was um, uh, Carlos Rodriguez. He was a member of the Communist Party from a very young age. He'd been the a communist official for during the 40s, whatever, and he he was one of the few bona fide party members that was a member of the government and a very important one. But he was anything but dogmatic. You know, he was he had a magnificent collection of contemporary art in his apartment. He he was obviously fond of living comfortably and uh you know he was your typical left left bank intellectual of nowadays or of the 60s and he the none of the people that I that I met with who were ministers in the government except maybe Che they didn't none of them had this uh marxist jargon uh that wasn't their thing and I explain in the book that most of the people who joined the the revolution when it was still in the process, when it was in the mountains, and 
in the underground in the cities, they just knew they had to do something that they had to they had to change that things were really bad. You know, they had this horrible dictator and. I mean, we talk about dictators today, and we, we slap the name on almost anybody we don't like, but in those days, Batista was a dictator who had taken power twice. He had, had uh, orchestrated uh, coups twice in Cuba, and um, the people were really unhappy, and of course there were many people who hardly had enough to eat let alone schools or hospitals or anything. So these people didn't have any kind of ideological education at all. And as for Fidel and Raul, they had read the Marxist literature, uh, but they didn't go there with an idea that, oh, we're going we're gonna to do Marxism. No, they just needed to, they knew they had to make a clean sweep. They knew what what they wanted to achieve, which was to bring the people up from where they were in material terms. And as I discovered, by piecing together the different versions of how the people came to join the revolution and where they were at the moment and how they saw it, that really in 1963, after the Bay of Pigs, when Fidel said, you know, what we're doing here is socialism, that was the first time he had used that word to the public, and it was because we had this terrible invasion, this attack, the people were, you know, reacted very positively to what Fidel said. Maybe they would have reacted differently if he had just said it in a, in a calm situation, oh, now we're going to do socialism, you know? It was after the attack, he said the things that we're doing, educating people on uh, um, teaching people to read, redistributing the land, or the plans to redistribute land. That's socialism, and do you agree with it? And they agree with it. So it was, a, it was I, I, I realized after all, all the talks I had that they knew where they wanted to go in terms of what they wanted to achieve, but it didn't have a label, and it, and it didn't have a clear path. But they they certainly believed in the basic ideas of socialism, but that's such a broad category that you can't label someone um, a communist like that. You don't, right. you know, it's just not. In fact, one of the things that Savia said to me was that in her, the way she's thought about communism is that you have to become a communist like by by the things that you do you don't wake up one morning and say i'm a communist and that's that's a very personal interpretation i might not exactly totally agree with that but it was it showed how how they were really speaking from the heart that's what it was all about when you know what that Am reminds I? me of in some ways and i, I don't say this um what am I say? I don't mean in an offensive way, but I would say that that almost sounds like a almost like of a religious ideology in some ways. So when when oh. you, when someone says I'm not going, you can't just call yourself, say, a Christian or a Muslim. Like you have to become a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or whatever it may be. But that, that sounds very similar yeah, in some maybe. ways. You're right. Yes, it is that way. It is the similar thing. Yeah, you're right. But so 
it had so little of a religious air to it in Cuba that at the first moment when he said that, I was rejecting it. You know what I mean? I mean, the oh, whole atmosphere was you. anything but religious. Right. In fact, it was the cha-cha-cha part of the revolution, which that's how it was known. And when Che left for South America, there was a turn, for some reason, away from that. It became a little more structured, a little more dogmatic, uh, although... Che was anything but a cha-cha-cha person. <laughs> and what do you, what do you mean uh, by that, if you could explain for folks, when you say that? Well, cha-cha-cha, you're dancing the cha-cha-cha all the time. You know, we're, you're, you're, you're having a good time, you're laughing, you think everything is wonderful. Um, that's, that was, you know, the enthusiastic time, the, the time when anything was possible, when, you know, people dared to think of, new ways of doing things and were able to get them done because everybody was so enthusiastic. Uh, after Che left, there was a turn toward more um, more of a kind of dogmatic uh, period, which I don't think lasted too long, but since I left shortly after he left, I, I don't have you know the personal experience of it, but it, it was definitely, it was definitely per- perceptive perceptible at the time um, in the last few months that I was there. And I don't really know or pretend to analyze, you know, the reasons. That wasn't sort of where my agenda was taking me. Um, But, you know, I returned to Cuba in 2011, as you you mentioned, that I I do have a little bit about uh, where Cuba um, is today in the 21st century and I have to say that my impression of the, the young people was fabulous. I mean, they really had succeeded in creating a mentality that was... The Cuban enthusiasm was enthusiasm about everything. They, my book was being presented at the Cuba Book Fair, which happens, I believe, every year in Havana. It's an international book fair and people from all over the world come there. Um, And it was always full of students. I mean, the students were, of course, being bussed there by their schools, but you could tell that they were really into it. They were, you know, very lively and and very healthy-looking and, you know, just coming from where I had seen them start with their education with all their dreams about, you know, making sure everybody got an education to where they were then in 2011. It was really great to see that. Cause that's a couple was of that your first time back, Dina? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, so how many years is that in between? It's about 40 years or so? Yeah, 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 yeah. 40, 50 years. That's amazing. Yeah. What, can I yeah. ask you why, you why you didn't go back in between that period? Well, mainly because I was, for a long time, I was living in Europe. I mean, I went back to Europe in 1981. Uh, I was living in Europe when I wrote the book. I, I moved around a lot. I spent five years behind the Iron Curtain. And so it was just that I was, you know, doing other things uh, at the time, living behind the Iron Curtain. You know, everybody didn't do that. Right. Um <laughs> 
Well, and uh, I would like to ask you about some of that too. See, there's so much. You're such a damn interesting person that we need yeah. you. <laughs> I need another hour or two to to speak with you about all of this. So we'll have to have you on the program again to talk about all kinds of stuff because I still have tons of questions to ask you, and I want to get to oh. that. But. But oh, okay. I do want well, to get. Me, but let me finish a couple of questions about the book, and then I want to broaden the conversation for the time that we have okay. left. Part of okay. what I found extremely interesting in the book, and I'm wondering if this is something that you intentionally did, or if this just came out sort of organically from your interviews. But the the people and the officials are very interested in your interviews in the production and the actual application of the revolution, as opposed to this sort of ideological question. So in other words, oh, you're, you talk to like government officials and you'd say, hey, what, did you, what, should, what do you make of Marxism and communism and so on? And they would sort of turn around and say, well, you know, my interest now is producing. You know, I'm, I'm here That's to right. produce That's and we need to figure right. out how to educate people and how to actually right. make the state apparatus work for the people. I found that very interesting. Right. I would never even have asked them that question. But I, I guess the closest thing to that question was when I was trying to find out how they were organizing things to make, to bring democracy down to the very local level. Because, of course, the big thing is you have to have democracy, right? You don't have democracy, you're no good. <laughs> and we see where that has left us, led <laughs> us at the moment. But anyway, uh, you know, and they had promised when they had met with various people in the West, yes, we're going to have democracy. But, of course, the way they went about it was a completely different way, and it was mostly organized by the party, and it was they were just starting to organize local democracy. Uh, so I would ask questions about that because different people would give me different versions of how they thought it was going to be. So I would try to... I would try to uh, make sure I was understanding and, you know, asking questions like that. To, uh, <coughs> excuse me. I have to have a drink. Can you can you? Oh, yeah. Do no problem. Fight, no problem. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, part of the reason I think that that's such an interesting point or such an interesting dynamic of these conversations you were having with the Cuban officials and the revolutionaries and even peasants and just regular folks on the street is that, you know, so we see what's happening in Venezuela right now, I think, is a good example of, you know, people really asking this question. I, I'm talking genuine people who are interested in emancipatory politics. I'm not talking about. Hi, I'm back. I'm back. You know, say the liberals out there or say people, the mainstream media who is criticizing the revolution in, in Venezuela. But I find this same question among people who are genuinely interested in, say, revolutionary politics, progressive politics, left-leaning politics, whatever you want to call it. And that is after you say you do take power, how do you actually uh, go about producing goods and services for people and so on? And that, that to me is, an, is sort of, it's probably an ongoing and never-ending question that we'll have to ask ourselves for people who are looking to, say, drastically restructure society. And that is not only how do you engage with that ideology that would lead to, the, to a new structures or new institutions for society, but then how do you actually go about applying these things? And there's so few examples, and I think this is why so many people have been so interested in what's happened in Cuba over the years. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yes, absolutely, 100%. And they were, you know, they were really trying to just do things the way they, um, the way they thought they had to be done, but not by consulting manuals or instruction books or <laughs> even history. You know, it was it was all like 
what do we have to do to get from A to B and then from B to C? Like I like to give the example of when they started the, the alphabetization campaign, the literacy campaign, um, most of the people that they needed to, to reach were in really uh, places in the mountains that were not easy to get to. So somebody had the bright idea of taking uh, the trains that carried sugarcane from field to um, factory where they was turned into sugar or whatever, or to the market or whatever. These these open cars with no roof, and they put palm roofs on them and a few wooden benches, and that's how they transported the students into the Sierra uh, to reach the people and, and be able to, to uh, uh, teach them to read. And it was always a problem, solution, not, you know, oh, well, we can't do this because that. No, you could always do it. It's just a matter of finding out how. And that was one of the things that I most identified with, I guess. <laughs> In returning to Cuba, as you mentioned, 45, mm -hmm. 50 years later, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts now? Because I have one of my great friends is, is a Cuban-American. He actually lives above mm -hmm. me now, which is great. So we're living in the same building. But uh, he's about 60 years old, and we talk about mm -hmm. Cuba nonstop. And he constantly, you know, one of the things that he's really concerned about is this the new policies towards Cuba because he hasn't had a chance to go back and visit. I think he's interested mm. in this this question that you raised, which is how are the newer generations, the younger generations, going to deal mm -hmm. with what I think both you and I know is sort of an inevitable process of this, like this this Western hyper-capitalist, hyper-materialist, hyper-individualistic culture that's going to try and inject itself into mm -hmm. that society. What what do you make of that? What do you think are the, the prospects for a decent future? And then what do you think are some of the challenges that the Cuban people are going to face with these new policies? I think these new policies are going to be fairly detrimental. But I think that the Cuban people have been in that new world for, you know, 60 years. So several generations have been raised on the idea that you don't work primarily for money. You work for the community. You 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 know, and that work work is is to build something for everybody. So I think that they will partly be able to resist the neoliberal bug that invariably wins out in in Western cultures. You know, we are not. We have never been vaccinated against it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> when, I lived, when I lived in Hungary, Hungary was just turning toward more of a market way of organizing their industry. They were no, nowhere near what we're doing in the, you know, this was in 1968, 1970. Um, and people were, I could see people were, were falling for the, the, the attraction of stuff, you know acquisitiveness, uh, wanting always more and shiny new things and that, you know, and I would tell them, eh, no, no, that's not good. <laughs> and they would say, what? Right. But, you know, it, it would be interesting to go back to Cuba in some near future date uh, to, see what, to see how that evolution is, is happening, how much, how much they're being turned around 180 degrees and how much they're resisting. 
Well, and it reminds I, me I, of the third chapter in your book where there's, I think the title, what's the title of the third chapter? Disputes over art, something like this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of that chapter because that's sort of the question that's being raised at that time is it's the, the chapter surrounds a film that's or, uh, several films that people are trying yeah. to play in Cuba. Yeah. And then there's elements within the Cuban society and Cuban government who are saying, well, how much influence do we want from Western society and so on? I found that chapter to be very interesting, kind of reminds me yeah. of what you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. But there it was more like, you know, we shouldn't show films about pimps. <laughs> we right. should show films about factories. <laughs> they were, you know, they were importing, you know, Pasolini from Italy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pasolini was someone who, you know, focused on the worst people in society. So they were, you know, the old time communists. They didn't think that was a, that was a clever idea. But luckily, the cinema crowd, who both were in, responsible for producing Cuba film, Cuban films and importing films from abroad, they were, you know, very adamant in, you know, defending that culture is culture and uh, we're not going to have any of that nonsense, you know. Uh, so that was what was going on at the, at the time. But this is more, you know, that we didn't have this, this such an exaggerated sense of money being everything the way it is now at that time, even in the West. So it would be very interesting for me to go back. But, um, yeah, I'd have to wear the right kind of shoes this time. When I went back in 2011, uh, <laughs> I had, I had it was, you know, it was in January, but it was warm. It was summer weather, and I was wearing sandals, and I couldn't walk on some of the cobblestone streets or the streets that were in bad repair. And, hey, I was <laughs> 50 years older, you know. <laughs> makes a difference. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I certainly encourage everybody to go. That's for sure. That's something I've been telling people as well is get down there now. I mean, because what I would like to yeah. do is to go now and at least see what it's like now and then to go back maybe 20 or 30 years from now and see. Yeah. That, that to me if, sounds interesting. Yeah. Well, where are you? You're in California? No, I'm not, actually. I live in, in northwest Indiana, just outside of Chicago, so about 50 oh, miles nice. east of Chicago, right on the Lake Michigan on a, in a town called Michigan City. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I, guess the, I guess you were on the West Coast because Lorna seems to have a lot of contacts on the West Coast. I don't know how I actually met Lorna. You know, I think I met Lorna maybe through social media. Now, Tay and Lane I'm familiar with because I met Kermit Armstrong from Tay and Lane Publishing back in 2014 when I was giving a talk at the Earth at Risk conference in San Francisco. So that's initially how I got turned on to Tay and Lane Publishing. That's initially how Mm I uh, met Kermit Armstrong. And then I'd say about a year or two later, Lorna sent me a message and then she sent me your book. And then I was lazy and busy at the same time, which I was very honest with Lorna. I was, she kept sending me me. You really have to give mm-hmm. Lorna a lot of credit. Just I have to say this. Because oh, I will definitely. She kept sending me emails. She was like, and very polite. And then she did it in the, just the best way possible. Because every time she would send an email, I, w- I would think to myself, you know, she's right. I need to sit down and finish this book. And then I finally <laughs> finished the book. And then I went back. And like I said, I've, I highlighted it. And I got a hold of Lorna. And I said, man, this is going to be a great pleasure. 
So you know what we'll, well have well, to do, to sig- Dina, if we could. Well, I would like to have mm-hmm. you back on the program so we can talk about your other work because we only have a few minutes left, and I, there's not much, you know, what can I right. – living behind the Iron Curtain, that's an hour-long conversation. Um, right. Well, I wanted to suggest on- that you get a hold of my memoir. I would love to. I would love to read it's after called- this book. Uh, I would love to read anything you have, Dina. It's called Lunch with Fellini, Dinner with Fidel. Oh, it's right here in the beginning. So Lunch with Fellini, Dinner with Fidel, A Journey from the Cold War to the Arab Spring. Right. That really uh, is pretty inclusive. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, well, we'll do that to, and then we'll do it again. I would love to do an interview after you read that. You have? Do you have my email or my phone? I'm calling you, but do you have my phone? Do you see my phone number there? I can get all that there? info from uh, Lorna, no problem. Okay. Okay, great. It's been great talking to you. I really have enjoyed it. I didn't think it would go this long, but it's fine. Oh, yo, I, I'm sorry. I should have been. I should have been more clear with Lorna. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I, I guess I had think it, thought it would be a half an hour, but we we did an hour almost here. Yeah. And that's fine. Uh, I can't. I don't know. Can I get your program on the computer? Yes, you can. You can access it at prn.fm, Progressive Radio Network. And then all you have to do is type in my name, Vincent Emanuele, or Meditations and Molotovs, which is the name of the program. Oh, it, can you, do you have my, my email? Oh, yeah. I'll send you all this info. Send, send me an email with all that, because um, then I think you would probably like to read my book, A Taoist Politics, The Case for Sacredness, which is a whole other whole other thing that you might be interested in. Cool. Yeah, let's continue this conversation. Very good. Thank you. All right, Dina. Well, thanks for your time, and I appreciate it. I do, too. Take care. All right, take care, Dina. Bye. Bye. So I want to thank Dina Stryker again. We were just speaking with Dina Stryker, the author of Cuba, A Diary of the Revolution, published by Tan Lane. And Another overview of the book, it had been nearly five decades since Dina Stryker, then Boyer, journeyed to Cuba. Dina, a photojournalist, went to revolutionary Cuba to both write and photograph the struggles, the trials, and disagreements, the victories and losses of the Cuban people. There, she experienced the revolution firsthand and enjoyed numerous conversations and powerful moments with its revolutionary leaders, people such as Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, Che Guevara, and Celia Sanchez, and a host of other revolutionaries. Cuba, A Diary of the Revolution, is the documented account of that journey during the early years of Cuba's revolution in the early 1960s, and also a candid look at the Cuba of today as it comes to detente with the United States. So, there you have it, folks. Check out Dina Stryker's book, Cuba, a Diary of the Revolution by Tayan Lane Publishing. You will not be disappointed. I hope we did it some justice. It's so tough to try and get through so much information. Uh, you know, I, to give you an example, if you're going to interview someone, what I usually do is I'll take a series of notes. So I went through the book first. I read it over the summer. And when I'm reading books, I like to take them in. It's almost like watching a movie for the first time. You know, dim the lights, put it on at night. Make sure you're in a quiet environment. You know, when I watch some of my favorite TV shows, which there aren't many, but I just got into a new TV show, Stranger Things, which is a series on Netflix. I think it's excellent. Kind of reminds me of a mix between like 
X-Men, X-Files, the Goonies, probably because of all the ch- the children who are in the movie or who are in the uh, the show. Nonetheless, what I like to do is I like to turn everything off. So I'm not going to sit there for an hour and watch one of my favorite programs or sit there for two or three hours and watch one of my favorite films or a new film that I'm very interested in seeing. And at the same time, have my phone going off, have my laptop opened up. All that bullshit is turned off. You know, so if you're going to really engage with something, whether that be a new album, whether that be a new book, whether that be a new TV series or film, you know, my suggestion is to tune out of everything else. We're so distracted constantly trying to do one thing while also trying to do another. So we're having conversations with people. Maybe you're having a cup of coffee with your friends. Maybe you're by yourself and you're having a cup of coffee. And at the same time, your phone's going off. And then you remember that you have an email to check. And then you get distracted by the TV. Or you get distracted by something that's on YouTube. It's craziness. You know, who can think like that? So anyway, I'm ranting about all kinds of stuff today. Nonetheless, you know, the point is, is if, you, if you're going to engage with material like that, I think you, you should sort of give it the respect that's due and make sure that you take the time to actually consume that information, consume that material in the most productive way possible. So, that being said, I think I was talking about something else as well. So when I'm interviewing someone, so for instance, with the book, with Cuba, A Diary of the Revolution, I read it over the latter part of the summer, finished it. Then I went back with a highlighter, highlighted the important parts that I, or parts I found interesting, things I wanted to ask Dina about. And then it came down, you know, made notes, and I've got about... 15 questions here. I think I asked Dina about eight or nine of the questions. And then I have another sheet that is just notes. Could be miscellaneous notes, notes I'm taking while I'm having a conversation with one of the guests. And then I can be asking questions off of the notes. And I've got the book in front of me. I didn't get to read anything out out of the book, which I wish I could have because it's so beautifully written. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, check it out. Great book. And the other books, as a, as Dina mentioned, and I didn't, I didn't properly mention in the introduction. So not only does, is Dina Stryker the author of Cuba, A Diary of the Revolution, but also for you cinephiles out there, The 200 Days of Eight and a Half, then written as Dina Boyer, the day-by-day account of the making of the Fellini film Eight and a Half. Then Una Oteri Europe. Uno Terry Monde. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Dina is probably throwing up right now as she's hearing this, but <laughs> that's that's in French. My friend Olivier is probably rolling over as well. Uh, this book foresaw the re- reunification of Europe and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And then the book that Dina did mention at the end of our conversation, Lunch with Fellini, Dinner with Fidel, a journey from the Cold War to the Arab Spring. And then also, America revealed to a honey-colored world, a pamphlet focusing on key periods in U.S. history. And last but not least, lovers and others. (laughs) Short stories and vignettes. I really enjoy that. What a great title for 
some short stories, lovers and others. All right, folks. We only got a couple minutes left. What else to announce? I don't think there's any major events taking place. I think everyone's trying to stay sane. The Cubs are going to the World Series. That's something positive to think about in light of this complete madness of an election cycle. We've got Halloween coming up this weekend, my favorite holiday. And, yeah, pumpkin spiced everything. So enjoy that kind of stuff. Otherwise, we'll talk to you next week on Meditations and Molotovs, where you could find us here every Monday. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. You can find Meditations and Molotovs here every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, take care. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Organic mechanics. Organic mechanics.